Lord, you have power that, is, that knows no bounds, that knows no parameters. You are great and majestic and awesome, and you are wonderful. And Lord God, in your power and in your wisdom and in your love, you sent into this world your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh. We celebrate him during this season especially, and I pray, Lord, that something of your glory and greatness uh, would descend during this time of preaching into our minds and onto our hearts, that we would leave this place later rejoicing all the more because of Jesus Christ, uh, because of the meaning of his coming into the world and and, uh, the glory of it. So thank you, Lord, for your word and for this time that we get to open your word in this public place. We realize that there are so many brothers and sisters across the globe that don't have this opportunity, that have to meet in private, that are persecuted for opening a Bible. And so, Lord, we thank you and we pray for them that you would give them a special strength and a special courage and resolve uh, at this time of year as they continue to worship you boldly. We pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, many of us are probably familiar with a song made famous by Joe Cocker back in the 1970s called You Are So Beautiful. You know that song? I won't try to sing it. I won't plague you with that. Uh, But it's a repetitive song. This week, I counted up the total words in You Are So Beautiful, and here are the results. A whopping 59%, can you believe it? 59% of the lyrics in the song go like this. You are so beautiful to me. That line just keeps repeating over and over and over again. But I guess that if you are lovesick over somebody and you set out to write a song about the person, you tend to fill the lyrics with repetitions of your feelings for the person, descriptions of how wonderful the person is. You are so beautiful. And oh, did I mention you are so beautiful to me? Well, friends, in the latter chapters of the Old Testament book of Exodus, the writer Moses sort of does what Joe Cocker does in that song, except in the case of Moses in the book of Exodus, he's not pining away over any woman. Rather, Moses repeats himself over and over again with love and affection for furniture. The furniture of God's tabernacle is so beautiful to Moses that Moses repeats descriptions of that furniture and he repeats details and lists of that furniture over and over and over again. Now, if you have a Bible with you or in front of you in the pew or on your phone, I want to ask you to please open it now to the book of Exodus 
to Exodus chapter 25 to begin. And for the next few moments, you will need to have a Bible open because the verses that we will touch on are not going to be written out in full on the screen. I just have the references there. So beginning at Exodus 25, verse 10, and going down through 25:22, what do we have? We have detailed, careful instructions for the building of two pieces of furniture. The Ark of the Covenant and its mercy seat. Then beginning at verse 23, we have the blueprint for the table, another piece of furniture, which takes us down through verse 30. And then the instructions for still another piece of tabernacle furniture, the lampstand, take us from verse 31 down through verse 40. Flip over to Exodus 27. In Exodus 27, we have further instructions for more furniture. The bronze altar. And then in chapter 30, if you flip there, we have further plans in Exodus 30 for both the altar of incense and the bronze basin. Now, what, what I want you to notice carefully in chapter 30 is verses 26 to 28, because there we have a list, a loving, affectionate list. If lists can be loving and affectionate, we have one here. It's a list of tabernacle furniture, the ark, the table, and all its utensils. Do you feel romantic yet? The lampstand and all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. (sighs) Moses just lingers over these items. And then one chapter later in in Exodus 31.7 and following, we get the list again. The ark with its mercy seat and all the furnishings of the tabernacle, including the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the basin and its stand, etc. You get the distinct feeling that this is Moses' version of You Are So Beautiful written thousands of years before Joe Cocker had the idea. Moses dwells here ponderously and lovingly on the tabernacle furniture. It gets better. Turn over to Exodus 35 now and look at verse 11 and following. Moses lingers here more than ever over the furniture. Now, we're not going to take time to read the whole passage, but notice that from Exodus 35.11 down through verse 19, so for nine verses, Moses lists furniture in loving detail. And then in Exodus 37 and Exodus 38, he gives us lengthy and affectionate descriptions of the actual building of the furniture. The ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, 
the altar of burnt offering, the bronze basin, all of that takes up another 37 verses of real estate in the book of Exodus. And then, friends, as the book of Exodus closes, ready for this? In chapters 39 and 40, last couple of chapters of Exodus, we get a very special concentration of furniture love from Moses. In chapter 39, verses 33 through 41, we have yet another warm-hearted list of tabernacle furniture, which is followed almost immediately by a description of the placement of all the furniture. In chapter 40, verses 2 through 15, which is followed in turn almost immediately by a ponderous, loving description of Moses setting up each piece of furniture in verses 18 through 33. Now at this point, you may be asking yourself a couple of questions. Has Pastor Brent lost his mind? The second more important question you might be asking yourself is, why this almost fanatical obsession with the tabernacle furniture in the latter chapters of Exodus. What is it about this tabernacle furniture that would cause the writer Moses to devote so much space to it, describing it so fondly and repetitively and reverently Well, to find answers, we go to other Bible passages. I hope you have your Bible open. Other Bible passages where we get strong clues as to why Moses would do this. I want us to notice something very telling and very important, first of all, in Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. At this point, we'll have the verses up on screen for you. These verses mention, we need to notice, the most important piece of tabernacle furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that whenever the Ark set out, that is, whenever they packed up the mobile tabernacle and began moving it along with this piece of furniture called the Ark, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. And when the ark came to a new resting place, Moses would then say, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Friends, what we must notice in these verses is the close connection, the almost organic connection between the ark, a material, physical piece of furniture, and the Lord himself. The ark moves and Moses addresses the living God. The ark rests and Moses addresses God again. See how the ark and God are connected. They are interwoven with one another. The physical material box made up of stuff 
called the Ark of the Covenant, and God, who is spirit, are mysteriously knitted together in the Numbers 10 text. No wonder Moses loved the furniture so much. A similar idea to the Numbers 10 passage can be found over in Psalm 24. Come there with me. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Here, the picture is the people are bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the gates of Jerusalem, the holy city. When they bring that physical, material, earthly piece of furniture into the gates, they shout praises that the king of glory is coming in to the city. The Lord is coming in when that piece of furniture comes in. Again, God and that material piece of furniture are almost organically inseparable there. And then in Numbers 4.15... I know we're going all over the place. Numbers 4.15 and again in Numbers 4.20, just a few verses later, the descendants of Kohath, listen to this, they are not to touch or even to look upon the holy things of the tabernacle. They are not to touch or look upon certain pieces of the tabernacle furniture lest They die. Even to touch or to look on that furniture could bring death. Which suggests very strongly that there was a profound relationship between the furniture and God himself. To look on that physical furniture or to touch it would be like looking at God or touching God who is holy, the unholy person who was guilty of touching or seeing it would die. Again, why had Moses been so repetitive and so passionate in his descriptions of the tabernacle furniture in the latter chapters of Exodus? He was that way because the tabernacle furniture and the tabernacle itself were so profoundly and closely intertwined with God himself. A truly amazing text that shows us just how close the relationship was between God himself and God's house with its furniture is Psalm 48, verses 12 to 14. The psalmist says, Psalm 48, 12 to 14, listen to what he says very carefully. He says, walk about Zion. That is, walk about Jerusalem with its main feature, the temple. Go around her, number her towers, he says. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. So the idea is, go and feast your eyes on the holy city and especially on the physical, material temple grounds, which were the main feature of the city, that you may what? 
that you may tell the next generation that this is God. See that? Our God, forever and ever, he will guide us forever. Do you see that? God and his physical material temple in Zion were so closely and organically related that in some sense to feast your eyes on Jerusalem with its temple was to feast your eyes on God, according to the psalmist. Well, now it's December 23rd. We're two days away from Christmas. What does all of this stuff have to do with Christmas? What does Moses' affectionate fascination with tabernacle furniture at the end of Exodus, and what does God's close relationship to the physical furnishings of his house have to do with Christ's coming into the world in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago? Well, let's turn over to our preaching text after all of that to find out. Our preaching text again this morning is found in the first chapter of John's Gospel, verse 14. John 1, verse 14. The verse again reads this way. It is a glorious, majestic, action-packed, excellent verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, for now, among us, glory, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I need water. Friends, what happened in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago was that the Word became flesh. Very briefly, when the Gospel writer John uses this phrase here, the Word, in verse 14, he's got his two feet planted firmly in two different contexts. One foot in one context and the other in another context, but both planted firmly. First of all, one foot is planted in the Jewish world of thought because John is writing to an audience with a host of Jewish readers. But John's second foot is planted in the Greek world of thought because he has many Gentile readers also. The word to a first century Jewish person would mean the powerful, creative utterance of God that had caused the world to come into being. Psalm 33.9 says that God spoke, he just spoke, and things came into being. So this phrase in John 1.14, the word in the ears of Jewish folk, would refer to the mighty creative speech of the Father. 
So the Jewish people of John's day would resonate with what John was saying here. But for the person who was more saturated or influenced by the world of Greek philosophy, which so many were in John's day, this this same phrase, the word, would also be understood by them, but in a slightly different way. In Greek philosophy, the word was the organizing principle that held things together. The organizing principle that held things together in a world of change. The word, in this way of thinking, had to do with an overarching purpose or an overarching design or order in the world. The word, to the Greek mind, was the thing that held the stars in their places. It was the thing that consistently caused the seasons to change. Even though the world is in flux, these things can be relied upon or depended on. The organizing principle that held things together in a world of change. So when John uses this phrase, the word, in John 1.14, he is successfully reaching both Jews and Greeks in a single stroke. Both groups would resonate with his language here. He says that the word, this eternal, creative, mighty utterance, this self-expression of the Father that fulfills the Father's purpose, and or, in Greek thought, the ordering principle of the world, the word, he says, became flesh. This is what happened at the nativity. This is what happened in Bethlehem in the manger. The eternal word, eternal word, became flesh. Now notice that verb, became. Ah, it's so important, friends, Christian friends. Became flesh. There is a permanence in the word became. See, something massive was happening on that first Christmas day. The Word, the eternal second person of the Trinity, Jesus, took on human flesh. He became flesh. Became. He then lived on the earth in human flesh. And He died on the cross in human flesh. And He rose from the dead in human flesh, and he ascended to heaven in human flesh, and he will return a second time in glorified human flesh. As Ian Hamilton has put it, the flesh he joined to his eternal being was not a robe he put on only later to take off. He became flesh. Friends, God decided that he wanted to express his solidarity with us. Amazing? He wanted to express his solidarity with frail human beings. And he did that in the most extraordinary way possible. He took on our human flesh permanently. 
The astonishing wonder of what happened that day in Bethlehem has been expressed, I think, very well again by Ian Hamilton. He writes this. Listen to this. The eternal God, who is himself uncontainable, became containable in the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is what happened on that first Christmas day, and the world has never been the same since. Well, maybe you can begin to see the connection now between the Word becoming flesh and all the stuff that we talked about at the beginning. We talked about God himself being connected so organically and inseparably, inseparably with physical, material stuff, with the tabernacle furniture. In the days of the tabernacle, God, who is spirit, intruded into the physical and the material. There was that mysterious and weighty connection between God and the tabernacle furniture, God and the tabernacle itself, and later, God and the temple. All of that Old Testament stuff prepares us, doesn't it, for what happened in Bethlehem on the first Christmas day. Surprise, surprise, on the first Christmas day, God himself took on a material physical body. Gary Anderson, whose work I'm admittedly indebted to this morning, he wrote a great essay on all this stuff. He says this, and you can, you can write this down and put it on your fridge because I think it's great, right beside your grocery list. As God became one with his furniture, so God became one with flesh. Again, as God became one with his furniture, tabernacle, so God became one with flesh. But let's keep traveling through John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. Here's where things get really interesting. The original Greek text of John 1.14, which lies behind our English translation, has a word here that literally means tented or tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. Now we've talked this morning about the intimate and organic relationship between God himself and the tabernacle and its furniture. Now in John 1.14, the gospel writer John purposely, purposely employs this word tabernacled. Jesus, who is the word become flesh, he tabernacled among us. Now friends, this is massive. May each of us see here the glory of God and be moved to worship this morning. I just want us to sit on this truth for a moment of Jesus tabernacling among us. 
What were some of the main contours or the primary characteristics of the Old Testament tabernacle, of this worship center that ancient Israel had been commanded to build during the wilderness years? Well, first of all, we need to reckon with the fact that the first time that the tabernacle comes on the scene in the Bible is in the context of God making and establishing a covenant relationship with his people. Covenant is directly connected to the tabernacle. That's the first thing. Secondly, the tabernacle was a mobile worship center. It was mobile. In other words, the tabernacle was designed to be packed up and move with the people as they went and journeyed to a new place in the land. They simply took it with them. Third, and I think perhaps most important, God indwelt the tabernacle. We've talked about this some already this morning. God's house on the earth as it were, was the tabernacle in the wilderness. God chose to live in the dust amongst his sinful people in their camp. In the tabernacle narrative itself in the book of Exodus, we have verses like Exodus 25.8, where God expresses his desire to dwell in the midst of his people. Our God is so good. And we have Exodus 29.45 where God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. As Greg Beale has written, the primary point of the tabernacle and also later the temple was that it was the place where God's glorious presence was manifested on earth to his people. Well, finally, in fourth place, God's glory was conspicuously and noticeably connected with the tabernacle. His glory. Twice in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, We have the record, I love this passage, we have the record of God's glory filling the tabernacle. So just imagine, if you can, God's bright, blazing light and his weighty power and splendor, his glory, filled the tabernacle. So with the Old Testament tabernacle, just to review, we have covenant, mobility, presence, and glory. In our preaching text, John says that the word became flesh and tabernacled. Tabernacled among us. The eternal second person of the triune Godhead became material, physical flesh and tabernacled among us. If the Old Testament tabernacle can be considered the rough, black and white, one-dimensional pencil sketch, Jesus is the technicolor, three-dimensional, final form 
of what God had only sketched in the tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. We said that the original tabernacle arrived in the context of the covenant with Moses. Well, the word become flesh arrives on the scene as God with us in physical form to establish the new covenant relationship. We also said that with the old tabernacle, it was a mobile thing, wasn't it? It moved around with God's people. Jesus tabernacled among us. The ministry of Jesus on earth was a mobile ministry. The one who tabernacled in our midst moved and lived and taught and healed and ate with people as they were on their journey. We also pointed out that the original tabernacle was where God chose to live on earth. Where his presence was especially apparent. Jesus tabernacled among us. Friends, the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus is what Vern Poitras has called the final form of God's presence among human beings. As Greg Beale says, Jesus is now the place. Jesus is now the place where God's presence is manifested in the world. Yes! Friends, what we celebrate at Christmas is that the creative, revelatory, loving, judging, redeeming presence of Almighty God has burst into this sin-sick world, into human history, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is God incarnate, God become flesh, God with us. Our fourth point when we were talking about the contours of the Old Testament tabernacle is that God's glory characterized it, or was undeniably connected with it. Well, what does John say in John 1.14? Notice what he says. John never throws words away. They're all inspired and incredibly meaningful. He says, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his what? His glory. There it is. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John is writing the Gospel of John many years after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended. And he says here that he and the other apostles and Christians had seen Jesus with their own eyes, had seen him. During his earthly life, day by day, they had set their eyes on him. They saw his glory. In Jesus, they had seen, they had perceived God's brightness. In Jesus, they had seen, had witnessed God's honor and God's weight. God's holiness and God's splendor, his glory. 
Just as God's glory had filled the tabernacle and later had filled the temple of Solomon, so God's glory filled the person of Jesus Christ and emanated from him in his life, in his teaching, in his healing, and especially in his death and resurrection. John and the others had witnessed this glory in Jesus Christ. They had seen it with their own eyes. Friends, Jesus was the location of God's presence on earth. In the redemptive plan of God, we need to understand, the bricks and mortar temple had been superseded by the person of Jesus Christ who said of himself in Matthew 12:6 he said of himself something greater than the temple is here see it's nice to visit Jerusalem if we have the chance to do that but we don't need to go to any Jerusalem temple anymore expecting a special experience of God's presence at the temple wall because the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and if we have a living relationship with him, he's all the presence of God that we will ever need. Well, because of time, we're going to end our exploration of John 1.14 at this point. We could preach weeks on this. We began this morning by pointing out that Moses, in his fond and affectionate repetition of lists of furniture, descriptions of furniture, he was all, almost writing love poetry. And why? Because Moses understood the profound and organic connection between that physical tabernacle furniture and God himself. In the New Testament, we have no less than four separate gospel accounts of the one who tabernacled among us, of the God who joined himself to physical, material stuff called human flesh on that first Christmas day. And along with the four Gospels, we also have the rest of the New Testament. What's the rest of the New Testament? It's effectively commentary on the life, purpose, and glory of the one who tabernacled among us. We can also rightly consider the entire Old Testament to be pointing at every point along the way, to be pointing to this Jesus so that we can understand the entire Bible to be love poetry about the Word become flesh, Jesus Christ. It's, it's like the Bible writers were saying as they wrote from Genesis right through Revelation, Jesus, you are so beautiful. You are so beautiful to us that we can't stop writing about you and singing your praises. You are so excellent and so great and you are our treasure. In John 1.14, John wrote with affection that he and the other Christians had seen the glory of Jesus. And so I want to, to end with this question to each and every one of you and to me. My question for each and every one of us today is have we seen some of the glory of Jesus even this morning? Better put, 
do you see the glory of Jesus in your life on a day-to-day basis? Be really honest with yourself. I mean, do you really see the glory of Jesus Christ in your day-to-day? Do you see it, first of all, in the fact that the entire motivating factor in God, the entire motivating factor in God for causing the Word to become flesh and tabernacle among us was love. That was the motivating factor in sending Jesus among us. The love of God sent Jesus into this sin-plagued world. For God so loved the world that he sent. Love. Do you see the glory there? The love of God, the Father, sending the willing, eager Son of God to the earth to be born, to live, and to die on the cross that his people would be forgiven of their sin and brought into the loving bosom of the Father. Do you see glory there? Are you most excited this Christmas? I know there's lots to be excited about, but my question is, are you most excited in your heart of hearts this Christmas about the greatness and the fame and the renown and the power and the light and the excellency and the honor of Jesus Christ? Is Jesus your greatest treasure? Do you see glory? Does it take your breath away to consider that the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that piece of furniture, the lid on top of the Ark, was sprinkled by the high priest of Israel annually on the Day of Atonement. It was sprinkled with the blood of a bull and a goat once a year to signify the covering of sin. But Jesus, who tabernacled among us, is the technicolor fulfillment of the pencil sketch. Jesus, you see, offered himself. Not a bull or a goat or both. He offered himself. He has shed his own high priestly blood as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Do you see, friend, do you see God's glory there? And does it bring you to your knees and make you want to worship? Richard Phillips has written that a workable definition of a Christian is that he or she is a person who sees the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Workable definition of, of a Christian. A person who sees the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. He says, Philip says, a Christian is someone who sees in Jesus the glory of God. He says others may see him as a valued teacher, a social reformer, or even a pitiful victim. But a Christian reads the Gospels and sees glory in Jesus Christ so that he or she worships him and yields his or her life as Jesus' disciple. My friend, do you see his glory? My prayer today is that the Spirit of God would give each of us a fresh vision in our hearts and minds. I know Christmas can become routine, that he would give us a fresh vision of the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Having a vision 
Just having a vision of the glory and the grandeur and the greatness and excellency of Jesus Christ can be the thing that sustains us in hard times. Catching spiritual sight of the glory of the one who tabernacled among us can be the thing that gets us through the tough times. I'm here to tell you. And so in the words of 2 Corinthians 3.18, on these Christmas days and beyond, may each and every one of us make efforts in exposing our hearts and minds to the Bible in going to prayer regularly, in fellowshipping with one another. May we each make a concerted effort this season to behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it blows our minds to consider that you would go to these unbelievable lengths to condescend and come and live in the dust with people who betrayed you, who sinned against you, who rebelled against you. And yet, Lord, because of the great love with which you loved us and your mercy and grace, which all of us did not deserve, you have done this. You have given us Christmas. And we praise you and we adore you and we thank you for who you are, for Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. have a wonderful Christmas Eve Eve, which is today, (laughs) and we hope to see you tomorrow night at our Christmas Eve service. Here is your benediction. Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him. Let him shield them all day long. Let the one the Lord loves rest between his shoulders, that you might be steadfast, immovable, and knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.